featuring the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Very excited. We are still here at TuneIn. They have not kicked us out yet, so that's good. I think that we have successfully completed an entire month here at our new home at TuneIn Studios right next to, or I should say across the street from the San Francisco Giants, so I feel pretty, pretty special. We've had a a lot of LGBTQ dignitaries and local heroes from San Francisco here on the program during the first month of being here at TuneIn, and that's because we're still waiting for a phone system. So thanks to all of you who are listening on Progressive Voices, who keep tuning in and who are absolutely supportive of LGBTQ voices. This program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. My guest today is Rich Russo. He is the program director for the San Francisco LGBTQ Speakers Bureau. We're going to learn all about the program, how it got started, and why it's so important. But first, let's get to know Rich. Rich, how's it going? Hi, I'm doing well. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, um, I've wanted to, you know, chat for a long time. I, what you do is super special in in organizing and ma- maintaining this really, really, I should say, not just cool but effective program. Uh, what I like about it is that it gives uh, LGBTQ students, and I mean students all around, whatever students, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, an opportunity to meet LGBTQ folks, and that is so important. But before we start talking about the program, like I said, I, we should get to know you. Nice. Um, you know, I know you as Rich, program director of this <laughs> awesome program, but w- who's Rich? Nice. Uh, my name is Rich Russo. Mm-hmm. I, uh, for those of you at home, I'm a white dude, cisgender, uh, identify as gay, and uh, I grew up in the Midwest outside Chicago, and I moved to San Francisco about, wow, 18 years ago. I moved like right around 20... 20,000, <laughs> 2001, is that how you say that? Oh, wow, awesome, uh, same here. Yeah, oh, nice, fine. Uh, so, yeah, and with the, uh, I've done a lot of work. I moved out here originally to start doing work with a nonprofit that was uh, sort of anti-violence and uh, r- responding to and prevention of domestic violence uh, and specifically teen dating violence. So I've been working in realms of working with young people in a variety of ways. My background's in secondary education. I was going to be sort of a tie-wearing Mr. Russo teacher. But it turned out being rich, the guy who comes in and chats with you, makes more sense for my personality. And what I like to do, I think uh, a lot of my experience in the classroom has really been going in and talking with the young people, especially back in the days of doing domestic violence work. It was focusing more on healthy relationships. And it turns out human beings, in particular teenager human beings, like talking about relationships. So (laughs) it was really successful, very easy. uh, And that led me to want to more and more have kind of, uh, I want to say informal conversations with young people my experience as a pre-teacher and during my student teaching was you come in and tell them what they need to know which makes a lot of sense if you're teaching math for example but if we're talking about relationships or people or uh even later in my career lgbtq stuff it it requires more of a conversation it's it's more impactful in my experience if they're able to kind of engage with it as opposed to come in and be told i think when we're teenagers we have lots of questions about lots of things and so giving them opportunity to have those conversations has always been something i've really enjoyed personally and professionally very cool very cool by the way i mean just because you're so nice and tall and you've got this great (laughs) outgoing personality you would have been my favorite teacher Uh you know especially in high school i'd be like that guy's really really cool um i would have told you my secrets (laughs) um so you know where did where did you you, like grow up and what was life like growing up as a, a a gay kid or if you came out you know, yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I'm 41. I was going to high school uh, in a suburb of Chicago in the m- early to mid-90s. I graduated high school in 95, graduated college in 99. And I mentioned the time period because I think there was something interesting happening where in the 90s there was – people didn't not know LGBT. LGB people existed <laughs> and so I think it's different than some folks I've spoken to who are you know sort of a bit older or even a bit younger in that I feel like modern day folks are kind of coming out earlier and earlier and uh, latter day folks are coming out we had to come out sort of later and so for me in the 90s in high school I think I sort of started understanding that I was feeling different than other people in a way that seemed beyond the way I think most teenagers feel different than other people. <laughs> and then it wasn't until I was in uh, in college, by going away to school, I went to a school about four hours away from home, 
I was like, okay, well, so here I get to be who I am and all of who I am and not in the, like, I'm going to reinvent myself, <laughs> new girl at the big college. It was more, <laughs> it was a tiny college and uh, it was um, more about, well, I, I don't need to sort of be who folks in my town have thought I am or sort of my family thinks I am. Uh, and so that sort of gave me a permission, I think, for sort of more authenticity. And so coming out was relatively easy, but... I was in the middle of Iowa at a really small school that had about 1,100 students, which is less than my high school had. And so uh, I was involved on campus and sort of the, the co-president and vice president and all that stuff of the LGBT uh, groups on campus. And that's where it sort of awoke my desire to do work, uh, sort of social justice-y kind of work, but also understanding at that time the various different experiences people had I as mentioned as a white cisgender dude coming out means something different for me than maybe someone who's not cisgender or who's not white or mm -hmm. not a man and so I think I kind of got a better gauge of that when I was in college meeting different kinds of people through that work even though it was a small school so there was a small community there but it was small <laughs> and there were you know so, two or three other folks who I knew that I were out say, also yeah, yeah. <laughs> one uh, of five yeah right exactly <laughs> and I mean it's purely a numbers game too I didn't I didn't get the impression there were a bunch of people who weren't out it was just we're out and we're the one in 10 or whatever the, the stat yeah. is these days. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I know I'm not supposed to ask this or it's one of the no, no questions. You don't answer them. If you go through the training for the speakers program uh -huh. and, and like you said, you know, kids are generally curious about relationships yeah. and sex. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but sex is a big part of, you know, our lives just as it is for uh, many other adults and adults who have relationships. Uh, but part of the coming out process also involves, yeah, the the, the first ex experience. I would say, at the, by this time, you know, college, you're an adult ish, <clears throat> at least <laughs> on, on paper. paper. <laughs> 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 like, I mean, if you're comfortable, yeah. Um, who, you know, who, not who, like specifically who, but what was the experience like in terms of the the first experience of falling in love? Hmm. It's a better way of putting it. Yeah. I, I always like to talk about the first time I fell in love because it involves listening to Enrique Iglesias. And I would think oh. that Enrique Iglesias would be super proud that lesbians made out to his songs <laughs> all night long. <laughs> all night long. Lionel Richie would be happy too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I got that much out of you. Nice. Okay. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, you know, so, huh. When did I first fall in love? Like the first real, question. yeah. Or you know, I, 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 the thing that immediately comes to mind is when I went and saw Aladdin. <laughs> <laughs> something about Aladdin awoke something in me that didn't make sense at the time. I guess like, oh, this cartoon is really cute, which isn't falling in love, but just sort of the idea of like, oh, I'm recognizing this attraction to a cartoon, which is weird, but you know, a boy, and you know, a boy who's caring about his feelings and bursting into song like I might sometimes as a theater nerd back in the day. Um, honestly, I think, you know, theater was a big place for me where I kind of came into myself, but also there were a lot of other folks there who were questioning who they are and who they could be. And we were taking on characters in a way that was for the art, but it was also about, well, what if I'm this person? What if I'm that person? And so I feel like there's a way where there are some other guys who were in theater who were just open and, uh, heart E, not Harvey, but heart. I'm making yeah. hearts with my hands. Uh, <laughs> that are, uh, you know, like they were sort of open key. to me. Yeah, like, like emotionally available, like willing yeah. to sort of be vulnerable, willing to connect in a way that was beyond, oh, what's up, dude? Which yeah. is a lot of the guys I was uh, most sort of exposed to outside of the theater world. And so I want to say, like, there was a way I felt, I felt a love there. I felt a, not only like sort of the standard crushes on like the lead, but also like me and the chorus of just feeling like this is a place for me. This is a community. And I kind of fell in love with that uh -huh. uh, atmosphere. Not to dodge the question, I would say in college is probably the first time I actually allowed myself to feel love for someone, and that yeah. was wonderful, and it was all googly, and there was a, an understanding I had of this is so natural and so normal, mm -hmm. for to use a loaded word intentionally, uh, and something, oh, like, this is what my heart feels, this is who I'm into, this person happens to be in a, a boy packaging <laughs> of a human being, yeah. uh, but my own understanding that this is just a thing that's happening. Yeah. Uh, and that was pushing against some ideas that I've been told uh, that I've been around in society for a while, which we'll talk about in a moment. But uh, the idea that people are recruited to be gay or turned gay or being not straight or not cisgender is an anomaly and a weird thing that kind of yeah. happens to people. Yeah. And so upon sort of feeling those feelings of love for the first time, like, oh, yeah, like this is just another part of who I am. Right. Uh, in a way that was really kind of beautiful right. and awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, great segue to talk about this very important program that – you are involved with, I think, you know, 
um, like every person in the LGBTQ community, you get asked a lot of questions or even like your peers, like your, your peers who are curious about it. They're yeah. curious themselves. Um, this word sexuality, you mm. know, and, and the spectrum of it. I'm going to put it that way. Um, that's my phone. Ah. Wow. Ding. <laughs> Michelle's new to this. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm like 10 years new yeah. into this. Um, but you know that the, there's still this curiosity, and I happen to think that for humans, at least, you know, we're still processing uh, whatever happens in our mind and our bodies, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. ourselves. So uh, let's let's go ahead and talk about this organization that you work with and how it got started and why. Nice, awesome. Uh, let me go kind of in reverse order, I think, because the story starts in 1978, but I want to give you a little more context first. Uh, so we, as you mentioned in a few different ways as we've been talking, we are the LGBTQ Speakers Bureau. Uh, we are all volunteers, and the main format that we do is schools invite us to come speak with their students. Uh, for the most part, that's high schools, though more and more it's becoming middle schools, and we're approved in San Francisco Unified School District to go to any classroom from fourth grade and up. So anywhere from fourth to 12th grade we'll, we'll go and we also speak with some adult groups and colleges groups as well on a regular basis. And the format is deceptively simple. We kind of go in and we're like, hi, we're people from the LGBTQ community. Here's a little bit about us. Questions? And really, like, even though it's been 40 years of that format, it continues to work very much like what you said. Folks are very curious. Young people are very curious. Even adults are curious. And so much of what happens is in those workshops, we're giving permission to ask the questions that might be kind of rude or might be kind of Mm -hmm. invasive or might Mm -hmm. be kind of the question that I don't want maybe the person sitting next to me in math class asking me or my coworker asking me or I don't feel comfortable answering. And so it's really a, a place of kind of demystifying and destigmatizing our communities which was a big need in a different way in 1978. So in yeah. 1978, in uh, California, there was something called the Briggs Initiative, or Prop 6, which maybe you all heard about. But what it is, is uh, it was a proposition that was on the ballot that said, people who are gay or who we think might be gay should not be allowed to teach in California public schools. Now, spoiler alert, it didn't pass. But at the time, luckily, thankfully to some of our uh, community members, there were teachers in San Francisco Unified School District who had been doing work uh, already around LGBT stuff, uh, but they specifically said, we need to tell our stories. If people knew us and knew that they knew us, maybe they'd be less likely to hurt us in the ballot booth and in the street. Because at the time in 1978, there was a big uptick in uh, L. I don't know what letters to use because I think our acronyms have changed so much over time. It's like in 1978 that there was a lot of documented yeah. um, reports of violence against specifically gay men and lesbians, of course, too, and, and trans folks as well. Uh, but specifically, the response was in to, um, excuse me, the response was to a lot of negative rhetoric that was being thrown around mm-hmm. in the day. Uh, this is the time of Anita Bryant and the Save the Children uh, initiatives. Basically, there was many, many messages out in the U.S. that gay folks are after your kids. Right. They want to recruit your kids. They want to harm you. And unfortunately, frankly, we've seen this even today. We, they, you know, they quote fingers change who they're talking about. Trans people are going to get you in the bathroom and gay people are after you. And it's sort of the same thing of like, what about our children? What about our children? Uh, and so going back to 78, excuse my timeline jumping. Uh, the idea was, well, you know, it's hard to change an adult's mind in some ways, than <laughs> it is for a young person. It, yeah, especially in the school system. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they were facing that. Uh, Tom Amiano, Hank Wilson were uh, two our two founders of the Speakers Bureau. And they were teachers in San Francisco Unified School District, elementary school teachers, I believe. And so uh, they were seeing that. They were fighting for you know anti-discrimination uh, policies for LG teachers, et cetera. So they were already seeing that, and we were seeing that all over. Uh, and so the idea was, you know, if we can go and kind of share our stories and demystify and answer the questions that are just about who we are and the the very normalcy, like we talked about already, of like, we love, you know, so yes, we have sex, of course we do, and that's not what we're here for. So like you said, <laughs> at the beginning, we tell the students very clear guidelines of what we can and can't, or should say, will and won't talk about. So we're in schools, so of course there's limitations on what we can talk about, and so much what we're doing is telling uh, the full story of who we are. 
of course sexuality is part of that. And so is our job and who we grew up with and you know where we went to school, et cetera. And so we're really able to tell kind of a fuller story than I think most folks get about people in our communities, in particular those who aren't members or don't know they're part of our American community just yet. Uh, and so there's a way really kind of um, open dialogue that happens in those classrooms and the young people are able to ask real live LGBTQ people questions about their real lives as opposed to seeing maybe, you know, today there's tons of media, there's tons of representation for better and for worse of LGBTQ people. And so I think there's a, a lot of fictitious representation. Mm -hmm. And this is, there's a real person who lives in your community who possibly went to your school. So there's really a different kind of connection that happens between the young people in the classroom and the adults. Beautiful, beautiful. Thanks. Thank you so much. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Rich. There's so many questions that I have, you know, especially <laughs> uh, about the impact of this program. And now that it's been around for a few years, you're celebrating an anniversary. Uh -huh. I want to talk about the reflection and look back and how much maybe this program has helped uh, change hearts and minds. So don't go away. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Rich Russo. Welcome back to the Michelle Meow Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. Our special guest in studio. That's Yay. right, in studio. I know we normally have uh, interviews over the phone, but we're, we're new here. We're new tenants of TuneIn. We're producing out of TuneIn, which is so awesome. They've been an awesome uh, partner of ours for so many years, so it was a natural evolution in my opinion. By the way, if you're tuning in uh, through Progressive Voices or however else, make sure you do download the TuneIn app. Um, you can find all kinds of shows, radio stations, podcasts, and all that good stuff. Our special guest in studio today is Rich Russo, and we're talking about his awesome, cool program that he is involved in, which is the uh, LGBT Speakers Bureau. And they're right here in San Francisco, started in San Francisco back in 78 uh, during a time in which, uh, yeah, I would I would say it was not necessarily all that popular hmm. for for LGBTQ people to go into schools mm -hmm. uh, to talk about ourselves. So you're celebrating 40 years this 40 year? 40 years, yeah. 78 wow. to 2018, yeah. Yeah, so big milestone. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in looking back and reflecting how many people have come and gone as far wow. as speakers, how many schools have invited you to speak, how many students have heard from these speakers, you know, what can you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I wish I could have a number for you right now for any of those, <laughs> but I don't have them, unfortunately. Uh, but, you know, so I can say that we, we have spoken to schools, both public and private, and, again, by, by being around now for 40 years, uh, all of them. Let's say we spoke at every school and <laughs> many, many young people. Uh, and our speakers, you know, what's fantastic about our speakers is that, um, first of all, that they're volunteers. And so that folks are able to find a way <laughs> in, in whatever that means for them, which is varied for each speaker, but what it means to actually give of their time. And the reason I mention that is because I think the motivation for why people come and, and how they want to speak with the students is really uh, evidenced in that. Now, of course, there's other folks who maybe want to do it. It takes a bit of... Uh, you know, some doing to volunteer, of course. And so uh, I, I think that, the again, the, the, the desire to, to, to be there and to speak with the students is, is fantastic. So the impact feels very deep. Even when you're in the classroom, you can kind of see the young people, oh, I, I didn't know that. Or, you know, kind of the real-time mind-changing that can happen or just clarifying and destigmatizing. Uh, for our speakers, there are folks who have been with us for near 20 years, folks who come for a year and then they have to do whatever's next for them or maybe they, they, they move out of San Francisco, which we know happens. Uh, so we have, I would guess, well, we have about 30 active speakers now. Uh, it doesn't seem hyperbolic to guess 100 over the 40 years we've had. And then when we were speaking has been really different, of course. So starting in 78, we talked a bit about that, but the need for education around not just who we are as LGBTQ people, but in particular in the 90s and, and uh, during time periods, what we needed to talk about was different. There was a, a push, a hard push from what I understand to, uh, excuse me, a difficult fight to get AIDS education in the public mm. schools. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, HIV and AIDS is something that uh, disproportionately impacts <laughs> our communities. And so um, the kind of conversations we would go in then, if we want to talk about HIV, 
well, most likely the speaker going in was going to be a gay man. And most of the questions young people had were about being a gay man. And so there was kind of a parallel conversations we were having at the time. The way we set it up actually was that we would send in, well, they, I wasn't a part of it yet, but the Speakers Bureau uh, would partner with other organizations doing HIV education because that wasn't our primary goal. But they would go in and sort of have a gay speaker and kind of answer the questions that young folks had about that. And then a conversation about HIV transmission, transmission, et cetera. Um, and, you know, and as time has gone on, uh, you know, recently, of course, more of our speakers have uh, direct experiences and strong feelings about the fight for marriage equality. And there's also lots of conversations around and who else and what else in our mm. communities. Uh, we weren't done at marriage. And I think folks, in our, uh, folks in our communities <laughs> kind of need the reminder of that sometimes. And frankly, right. I need that reminder myself. I mean, you know, I'm yeah. someone of many privileges and we need to remember to reach back for the rest of our community as many folks had for us before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think there's some good stuff that's happening with that. And our speakers are interested in talking about that in sort of modern day way uh, in a way that's kind of shifted to each decade and the big thing that's happening for our communities. And so our mission statement when we were when we were started, the, the mission statement was that we aim to bring an end to homophobic and transphobic violence and harassment by educating people about our everyday lives. Mm-hmm. And so I think today, sort of modern day answer, um, you know, we know, we know statistically, we hopefully know from our hearts that there are people in our communities who are more marginalized than others and we need those voices represented uh, in our communities as well as in the classrooms. If we're talking about decreasing violence and harassment, we know that in particular trans women and femmes of color are much more likely than uh, anyone else in mm-hmm. our in our uh, communities to be harmed both physically, emotionally, et cetera. So um, what I'm seeing is that over our 40 years, the kinds of conversations and the main things that we're focusing on shift like it would for any community, but in particular, the young people are tuned in and I think right now we end up talking about politics a lot with young right. people. Uh, yeah. And their, their questions are about, you know, well, how do I get politically involved and what can I do to sort of take action? And there's a, I think we're seeing right now young people, as always, are at the forefront of, you know, struggles for rights and for improving yeah. our society in all ways. And so it's exciting to see young folks, primarily straight young folks, mm-hmm. who are interested in how can I mm-hmm. help? What can I do? How can I be an ally with a capital A who mm-hmm. gets out in the street and does the activism, et cetera? So... That's pretty heady and cool. Yeah, yeah. Some of the questions that I have, I mean, you know, California is uh, ahead of the game here in, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, if we were going to compare states, right, and, and schools, uh, districts or systems as far as being uh, as inclusive as we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, San Francisco is ahead of the game in California and, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. the whole drill. I mean, one of the things that we've done here in California is pass a bill or, uh, or a law um, that, that will include LGBTQ people in textbooks, right? Yeah. Um, so with that said, I mean, I, I think that something you said earlier, wh- which is also educating, you know, the parents, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask, do you feel as if, like, these these questions of, like, who LGBTQ people are will will always continue because it, it's kind of this mysterious thing mm-hmm. to, to parents in a lot of ways? Or are we getting to a point where... Um, parents already know how to talk to their kids at home about mm-hmm. you know not uh, that lgbtq people exist mm-hmm. you know like mm-hmm. is that is that part of the education is that part of the the program yeah in in some ways yes in some ways no so we we um anyone who wants us can request us give us a call <laughs> or an email or whatever uh but i'd say that because there are times when parent groups have requested us uh but i think also sort of in the in the, in the larger sort of cultural picture which i think is in some ways what your question is about um you know, I think for a long time, many LGBTQ people needed to hide. We needed to yeah. hide who we were and are and sort of for our own safety. And so I think for that reason, uh, for better and for worse, you know, we created our own community, our own cultures, our own language, like and like any uh, marginalized group. And there's a way where I feel like more and more that is becoming uh, mainstream and sort of public knowledge. So I think there's a way that people in general are more familiar <laughs> with us and that we exist. And I do think they're still sort of, you know, I would think if I went to my parents who are heterosexual, <laughs> like most LGBT people's parents are, there's a difference that we're reaching across that is just difficult to reach across because it's about lived experiences that they haven't had. So I think that is a bit of the push-pull we feel sometimes as queer people when we talk, want to talk with our families. I need to tell them this thing, but I also need to educate them about what it is and isn't and who this means I am and I am not. And so... I think the piece of parents continuing to need education, we're talking primarily about straight parents, 
And mm-hmm. uh, it's again, it's a, an experience that these folks have not had. And so there's something really special about in our program, real live LGBTQ people live and They're in person. Touch right? them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, don't touch us, but yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Body autonomy is also. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, so I, I think that the, the, the need for education uh, continues to sort of evolve and shift. And there's something really specific and special about being able to talk with someone who has had that experience. And if a young person does identify or is questioning uh, as LGBTQ, LMNOP, yeah. uh, that, um, you know, to, to see ourselves, right. to see ourselves and, 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 and more and more, especially with the Speakers Bureau, to broaden what that means. Yeah. So if I'm going to my parents and asking them, chances are their experience is based on their experience. However, if I'm a young queer person of color or I'm trans or all of the above and I see a person in my classroom who is also all of the above, just the moment of seeing that person is an acknowledgement of a future that could happen that that young person might not have had before, which is, maybe mm-hmm. you can hear my voice, emotional. <laughs> and yeah. it, it, it's quite moving. Yeah. And for the young straight person sitting next to them, they're also having the experience of, oh, this is a person just like everybody else, and they're coming in, and they're you know talking about that their bus was late. And like so the humanizing piece that happens humanizing uh, is, piece, is yeah. really, really paramount even today. Yeah. Well, I want to congratulate you and the organization in celebrating 40 years of, of – of doing what you do and it's so great it's so incredible it's so necessary so my last question to you is yeah it works in san francisco it's Mm -hmm. working it will continue to work we'll always need it in my opinion but there are some cities across this country that desperately need it is there a national program or an effort to to expand right so uh i think that in the future for us specifically there's tons of room for us to continue, continue to spread out across the Bay Area in particular. So, yes, there's plenty of places throughout the U.S. And there's plenty of places around the Bay Area right. that could <laughs> still, that could, where, where folks have questions or perhaps they don't, don't have as, mu- as much exposure, et cetera. You know, I mentioned earlier working with teenagers. When I first started working here in San Francisco, there's a young man. It really stands out to me in my head. Um, I assume he's cis. I assume he, well, I know he's straight because he told me all the time. Uh which maybe means the opposite. But anyway, <laughs> as a kid, he was very much, as a teenager, he was very much making sure that he wanted everyone to know that he was cool with gay people, but he is not one. He would say, mm-hmm. I don't even ride the bus through the Castro. So there's something to be said about, even within our own community, there's still pockets of folks who could use more information <laughs> uh, and throughout the Bay Area and, exactly. of course, nationally. So for us, because we're relatively small, I think if we were to grow, it would be, uh, well, we're going to, 40 years, we're going to keep going. Uh, but there's room for us to expand within the Bay Area and with our current speaker group as well, where we're immediately in the Bay Area. That said, I know of other groups, in particular down in San Mateo, they're just starting their own countywide uh, LGBTQ center. Uh, the South Bay has some things. Many other states will have them as well. What I'm really happy about uh, is seeing more and more GSAs, pop, uh, gay straight alliances or genders and sexualities alliances, where it's young people who are kind of peer leading some of the movements and the educating that happens. Mm. Uh, in a way that makes a lot of sense because more and more we're seeing younger folks coming out. So I think there's room for us to consider that as we expand as well. What would it look like to have speakers who are maybe currently in high school as well as the other end of the age spectrum? How do we get young people access to our queer seniors? Mm -hmm. Because, of course, they have different stories than the young people Mm -hmm. and the folks who are somewhere between the two ages. So I think about expanding in that direction of how we can continue to have intersectional uh, awareness and lenses and representation locally as well as continuing to get folks out into schools. For the most part, I think uh, queer centers and even some PFLAG organizations Mm -hmm. uh, are doing work in in other areas in the country that will hopefully be as awesome as us. (laughs) Well, Rich, you are the coolest and the most awesome-ish, however... The whatever the correct <laughs> grammatical I'll way of like making ESG the most awesome person. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for coming by the program. Thank you for having me. Thank you for sometimes being a speaker with us too. By the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. When I can make time, I, I would. Lo- I mean, I love to. Um, I just want to give you a shout out because I know you are someone who is busy and doing tons of things for our communities, <laughs> and you are someone who also has made time when you can to come and be a speaker with the young people and. Uh, I think you're really good at it. And you clearly have a voice to apply for. I mean, you're using it for our community. So thank you for that. Thank you. Don't go away. When we come back, our second guest or the second half of the program is going to focus on LGBTQ, but also San Francisco politics. And uh, it is getting pretty heated here in (laughs) the 415 uh, area code. So (laughs) don't go away. You don't want to miss it. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. 
So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face -face with today's thought leaders. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. This program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our next guest is in studio. I know, again, it's uh, it's been about a month that we've been here in, at, at TuneIn. We don't have our phone systems yet. But um, having in-studio guests, is uh, it's been so fun because I actually get to see good friends and people who are in the community. And so we've had San Francisco LGBTQ dignitaries, um, it, cultural influencers, political activists, social justice activists, you know it. And so our next guest is just as special, if not more special, than, than every single person who's walked in here. And I would say uh, that's because she's been a longtime advocate in the women's rights community, the LGBTQ community has served on political positions within the San Francisco uh, City Hall and also served as, as president, executive at various nonprofit organizations. So she's just no stranger to the community and I would say the overall San Francisco community, and that's Andrea Shorter. Andrea, welcome to the program. Thank you, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Um, you know, it's been a while since we last talked. I think the last time we talked was a panel that you had put together in addressing you know, racial injustice and, and in inequality within right. the city. Right, as part of uh, the Alice B. Toklas Club. Absolutely. Yeah, and so just to give everybody, you know, just some perspective of the various diverse types of work that you do. But I brought you here today. You know, what's interesting is that you're actually my very first guest in speaking openly about the mayoral race here in San Francisco. So just to give you some ideas, some perspective, okay. I've been holding on to my thoughts and my opinions and my emotions mm -hmm. of what's going on in San Francisco. But uh, for those of you who are out there outside of the city, outside of the state, I mentioned this before, and so has John Zipper of Commonwealth Club, but what's happening in San Francisco is good for you to know. And the reason why is because as we head into even the fall election uh, of 2018 and various other elections across the state, you're going to see a record number of uh, women, of people of color, of uh, all kinds of people that you may not have seen before. And so these conversations that we're having right now might help you make a decision come time to, to do that. Uh, so with that being said, Andrea, let's talk about what you're up to and what you're doing in, in terms of this mayoral race. I, I mean, your own words. Well, I just want to first of all, again, say thank you, Michelle, and thanks for all that you do in the community. You're engaged in all of the most important conversations as well, and we certainly enjoyed having you at Alice Toklas and to discuss as one of the panelists, as one of our 
our resident um, experts in the community that is observing and taking in and involved in conversations not only uh, regarding race but uh, you know LGBTQ issues, women's issues. So we always appreciate your leadership and and what you have to contribute. So. I'm glad to have the mic today and to <laughs> be the yours. first in line <laughs> in uh, really what is an abbreviated uh, election um, season towards the mayoral office. And the reason why, again, it's abbreviated, I think that anybody beyond the borders of the city and county of San Francisco was quite well aware that uh, we um, had the unexpected um, and unfortunate um, the death of our beloved Ed Lee, who mm-hmm. was serving as mayor. And so what has happened is uh, similar to what occurred when Diane Feinstein became mayor um, at the, uh, you know, uh, the, the assassination of then mayor um, George Moscone, along with uh, Harvey Milk, who was serving on the Board of Supervisors, she became mayor because she was the president of the Board of Supervisors, and the charter provides that that is the succession. Mm-hmm. So um, in the event that the mayor is incapacitated or no longer able to serve, and certainly um, by death, then the president serves. Uh, and then also in that case, um, the Board of Supervisors has an opportunity to basically, it's been you know, pro forma, um, to allow that uh, person as acting mayor to continue an interim until the next election. So that's where we are again. It's kind of like deja vu all over again mm-hmm. um, in that we had London Breed, who has been serving as the president of the Board of Supervisors, who's our acting um, mayor. And then, bec- you know, the issue became whether or not she would be retained um I think the ex- expectation was that she would be. And then that wasn't to be. And so right. it was really the ouster, uh, the deposing of her that became, um, you know, a, a, a real issue. Um, and the way that it went down and all sorts of things sort of came out of that with regards to race, with regards to gender. And I think specifically with regards to um how people view or see particularly African-American women in positions of power and sort of that ceiling and some of the, the, um, the, the words and some of the speeches that were made indicated something that I think most San Franciscans did not feel very comfortable mm. about in terms of this is not us, this is not how uh, our values um, our, th- our values are not in line with what we're hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, some of our our elected leaders say, um, in terms of how they viewed um, this particular person, how they viewed London as someone that was, you know, not of independent mind, um, that was subservient, or somehow uh, had this master figure behind her of a white, privileged, rich person. And it set off a lot of alarms, like, whoa, wait a minute here. Um, And so it also demonstrated sort of a very myopic um, point of view, um, perhaps very politically driven point of view from members of that, of the body of the Board of Supervisors. So what I am doing is, uh, and I would be doing it anyway, is I'm supporting London Breed for the mayor's um, seat, not because of all that drama that went down, um, but because I think that she's most qualified uh, Mm -hmm. to serve, and I think that it is her time. And so myself, along with uh, other um, women, started an independent expenditure campaign, uh, and it's called It's Our Time, SF Women for London Breed for Mayor. And so what we're doing is really just working to highlight what we think are are the great things about London and why we think that she should be mayor. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I I couldn't agree more that it is our time as far as women, women of color, to lead Mm -hmm. in in any leadership position, whether that's, you know, political, 
or uh, at a company or in Hollywood, mm-hmm. right? We're having these right. conversations now. Um, I want to go back to what happened to London mm. as far as the uh, supervisors and their decision and all this stuff that, and I'm going to come at you in a way where uh, I'm a bystander. I mean, I'm just like a lot of voters out there in San Francisco um, and, and my, maybe even undecided, right, in that sphere where I'm getting all my information from the local media. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them, obviously, they have a bias slant, like mm-hmm. someone like you know the Examiner, you know Chronicle, and some of those writers, mm-hmm. and then some of them very uh, progressive, very liberal, very radical. Um, that being said, who knows what the truth is? Is what's going on in my mind, <laughs> right? And so to hear from a supervisor who passionately gave a speech, delivered a speech, a, a teary speech mm-hmm. um, in talking about how horrible, right, the conditions of the city has been in pointing fingers of the displacement, the uh, housing crisis, the homelessness, the mental health issues that lots of people from the moderate to the liberal camps are Mm -hmm. concerned about. But to place that all, as you had mentioned, on the fact that uh, London may have the backing of someone like... um, I don't. E- I don't even need to say his name at this point. But Ron Conway. I'm going to say it for people who don't know outside of San Francisco. He's a big tech investor, and just saying that name, you know, people mm-hmm. have a negative reaction because of his relationship with our previous mayor, right? And some of the policies or the the changes that we have seen as a city. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, for for someone who doesn't really know, right? Mm-hmm. Doesn't really know. Um, what's what is what was london's reaction to that or how did that make her feel as a person so what's up with that yeah exactly (laughs) exactly i mean you know and and at the same time it's like well is it true though because ron conway is a scary man in san francisco right now we in in some ways to some right liberal voters yeah well i i think to fewer i think that we're talking about you know, very, very few people. Mm. I think that he is a device that they use um, to fear monger and to, there's got to be some sort of boogeyman always in the background, especially when it comes to people of color who are in leadership positions. Think about it. Ed Lee. Mm-hmm. Now, whether you agreed with him or not, uh, whether you liked that he ran when he said he wasn't going to run, whether you liked his, what, whatever the case may be. Um, it's it's the same type of narrative that you can't possibly be someone who can stand on your own two feet. Ed Lee was a mature man who had worked for 20 to 30 years as a public servant, headed up uh, major departments. He knew what he was doing. Um, but somehow, he then becomes the subservient, right? He's the servant of it has to be some some powerful white guy in the background mm. that's telling you what to do and you can't do anything unless he tells you. Same thing with her. Um, that any kind of association, and remote or, or otherwise, then you must be um, doing the dictate of this individual. So whether it's a, you know, Ron Conway or many, you know, years ago it was Don Fisher or it was someone else, that's always been something of a dynamic in the recent, I'd say the last 20 to 25 years of San Francisco's progressive political narrative. Mm. Okay. Mm. So there's that. And what I think makes it really alarming um, is as progressives that I think everyone needs to really step back and look at that. What are we saying? You can't have it both ways. You can't be uh, on one day um, in alignment or at least proclaiming that you are in alignment with the issues and the challenges and the struggles um, and trying to have put forward some solutions and resolution to those issues and struggles on behalf of people of color, on behalf of women, on behalf of those that represent 
vulnerable populations. And also claim that you are invested in equality. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, hold the opinion, as was expressed on that evening, that is completely and wholly contradictory to that. That says you, however, are still less than because you cannot apparently think on your own, act on your own, and lead on your own mm. without some white master mm. behind you. And so what is London's reaction to that? I think that she said it best herself. Um, that she is, you know, look, there may be relationships, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that person dictates, tells me what to do, and I can't act. No one asked Gavin Newsom about his relationship to similar individuals or same individual. Mm. Good no point. One, Good point. No one has asked other yeah. uh, politicians. No one, and, and the irony is that um, by then placing Mark Farrell, into the position after this speech by Hillary Ronan with the crocodile tears and how much I love black people and all those things. It, it's, you know, I was in the room and it just felt like it was not just scripted in that moment, but you know that script. <laughs> you know what you're about ready to hear. And you're waiting for the, yeah, I love you, I love you, but... <laughs> Okay, we were all waiting for the butt. All the black women and the, yeah. and, the and, and the Latinos and the uh, you know Asian women were like okay, but we, we waiting for the big butt. Yeah, and because we know that script, and so um, and by describing that we I cannot support you, London, because you are affiliated, you are associated with someone of this particular profile, white, uh, wealthy, yada yada, uh, and then turn around. Mm-hmm. And then um, voted to um, have her replaced as interim or acting mayor. A supervisor that has exactly the same profile. And in fact... (laughs) Yeah, white rich guy. And in fact is doing business with (laughs) the other, um, you know, boogeyman white guy. I'm sure just as many uh, boogeyman rich white people. So I think it's it's just, it, it goes beyond sort of optics. Yeah. You know, so people are like, oh, my God, the optics on that are just horrible. Well, on, on that point, I mean, you know, to expand on that, there are, there are, what about the concerns of, you know, uh, overreach of power because she also served as board or uh, president of su- the board president of supervisors and then acting mayor. That was just a combination of too much power, which I can understand. Um, and and also um, all baloney. Yeah. That's yeah. baloney. Yeah. They knew it. It's baloney. Um. You know, again, it was a message crafted Mm -hmm. to, um, I think, further um, place doubt, to further um, um, suggest that, you know, there's too much power Mm. (laughs) for for anyone human, you know, especially for for uh, a black woman. But that wasn't true, and they knew that it wasn't true. That had she um, been, um, you know, continued in in that capacity. Um, that she would then have to um, relinquish her seat as the um, district supervisor, you know. So th- it wasn't it, that wasn't true. Mm-hmm. Um, so they just sort of it was just sort of a I think a pile on. It was to help to justify um, the moves that they made, um, which I I you know. <laughs> well, you said it earlier in the interview. You talked about it being a fast-tracked election. I mean, this is a short, you know, mm-hmm. election season for us because, uh, tragically, you know, our our former mayor died, and so we're making this decision in, in a couple months here, a few mm-hmm. months. I mean, June's mm-hmm. right around the corner. I know June fifth is election day. Yeah, and and um, you know, there was this conversation about incumbency mm-hmm. and how that gives somebody uh. Uh, an edge mm-hmm. or you know uh, some uh what's it called advantage that mm-hmm. there you go an advantage to the election and we've seen that before with ed lee we've seen that with um diane feinstein mm-hmm. uh is it really that much of an advantage if it's a shortened season i don't know i don't think so <laughs> i really don't i think that that's completely overblown I think that when you are um, so desperate, uh, I think that that our progressive um, camp um, 
you know, they are definitely um, on the prowl to have what they consider a progressive mayor of their own. And I think we're, we're willing, obviously, quite obviously, as it's playing out, we're willing to move heaven and earth mm -hmm. um, to make that happen and to elevate a candidate mm -hmm. that they felt uh, that they could get behind, who has never been a progressive. He's been a moderate. He's mm -hmm. been part of the establishment. He has, you know, been the biggest beneficiary of political action committees and super PACs and also IE committees and all these things that, that he is now trying to castigate. Um, but at any rate, that's how it went down. But in terms of, of um, the advantage, I think that there's another question about that. The Board of Supervisors are to act on the issue of governance, okay? Not political projections and electoral projections. So I think we need to be very careful in terms of the kinds of reasoning and rationale that they were putting forth uh, before that particular vote to justify their actions in there. I think we need to be very careful. When you are making political projections, when you are making electoral projections and predictions, based on what? Based on one scenario? It doesn't matter what it's based on. It is not appropriate in terms of the issues mm -hmm. of governance. Mm -hmm. The only thing that you are to do is, we have elected this person as president of the Board of Supervisors, knowing full well that in the event that the mayor is incapacitated or dies, that this person would stand in by succession mm -hmm. and to continue to make sure that we are a governing body, that make sure that things are governing, that it's different and separate. I'm not saying, I'm not naive. Uh, I'm not saying that governance is exclusive to politics, but see, by charter, you are there to determine and to, um, to really, are, is she or is he acting in accordance? Is he or she executing the constitutional duties of that office of mayor? Mm -hmm. Not about whether or not if you run, you're going to get a bump up here or bump up there or bump up, you know, anywhere, everywhere, <laughs> you know, that's not, that's yeah. not the point. Yeah. So did, if the question is, um, whether or not her serving as acting mayor might have helped her. It might have, but that remains to be seen. That is ultimately up to the voters to decide. To so to try to supersede the voters in determining who they want as mayor. What it also does is, is um, it suggests that um, she, um, or any other candidate, but she would not be qualified. Mm -hmm. That's completely contradictory to why you are the president of the board and in line to act as acting mayor. I think that she's doing well because of who she is, mm -hmm. because of her story, and because of what she brings and because of the leadership that she's demonstrated for San Francisco. Absolutely. And you can't beat that. Right. So I think that this promoting the idea that, oh, well, she's only, you know, she's doing well because of a guy, you know, whatever. Yeah. I don't know about that. Yeah. I and, think and or, or it's it's a uh, something that has happened before. It's it happens not, it's, every day. You know, to be honest with you, it, mm -hmm. take the politics out of it, and not the mm -hmm. politics, but take the mayoral race out of it. Mm -hmm. It sounds like what goes down at the at a pride committee planning <laughs> meeting. I'm sorry, <laughs> but that's the truth. Uh, we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we're gonna continue our conversation with Andrea Shorter. I want to get her thoughts and opinions on identity politics and how that plays into. Um, the ballot box and the, deci mm. the decisions that you make on election day. So don't go away. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Welcome back to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. Thank you so much for joining us here. It is a semi-beautiful day. No, it's actually always a beautiful day in San Francisco, whether it's raining, it's foggy, it's cold, or it's sunny. And that's just because it is a city that I love, regardless of how much it's changed or regardless of the politics. And so <laughs> the person sitting across from here, uh, f across from me here at the TuneIn facility is 
is Andrea Shorter, a good friend and also a long, long, long time advocate and activist in the San Francisco community and has her hands in all kinds of things, especially political activity. Currently, she is leading a, a campaign in support of London Breed, who's running for mayor here in San Francisco. And it's all centered around it's our time, women for London Breed. So, Andrea, I wanted to talk about identity politics. This is really important because I get a lot of white, cisgender, radical, liberal, self-professed, socialist, young voters who scream in my face as if I don't know what it's like to be a woman of color or a non-conforming queer woman of color, mm-hmm. or that I can't make the decision for myself. And so I would say this. Those identities matter, like you just said. And wow, what a great achievement and what a wonderful success for San Francisco to be um, uh, this place where a black woman can run, uh, an Asian woman can run, mm-hmm. and a gay man can run, and potentially be the first in their communities of many things. Like mm-hmm. that, we should celebrate the mm-hmm. fact that we've gotten this far, right? right. Um, and in the video that you that the organization that produced the campaign that you're a part of, it was uh, very eye opening to see, you know, how many. Uh, white right. men have been mayors right. or, you know, of, of, of a big city like San Francisco. But I want to get your thoughts on this whole identity politics. And, and to be honest with you, you know, it's like, yeah, Jane Kim resonates with me as an Asian-American uh, progressive woman mm-hmm. who has fought for free edu- free city college here in the city, uh, represents a, a uh, district, you know, that we are, that is home to the most marginalized, has been pro-transgender rights and, and a, among a lot of things that fit my, um, mm-hmm. you know, agenda, right? So mm-hmm. then, but then at the same time, uh, there's some things that I agree with, with with London, some things I don't, and then at the same time, looking at, yeah, it is our time, we should be electing African-American women mm-hmm. in leadership positions, and then uh, to swing it all the way back, dang, you know, it's this white guy who's running for mayor, but he's gay, and he's been a part of our community, mm-hmm. has done tremendous things for women's rights, for LGBTQ rights, for education, for healthcare, for the environment. Mm-hmm. I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> Hey, look, you know what? I, no one can deny that we, um, that um, no matter what happens, that it's very likely that some history will be made for San Francisco mm-hmm. uh, in terms of who's able to serve um, as mayor. When I came to San Francisco in 91, I think that the population then of African Americans was around 13%. Mm-hmm. And I actually had chaired, co-chaired the last um, census um, along with Annie Chung, a very good friend of mine who runs self-help for the el- elderly. So we co-chaired the last census, and at that time, our population, African-American population, I think, was had dropped down to just a little under 6%. I was going to say 6 Right. And so we're, you know, it's still steadily um, going down. And so what does it have to do with identity politics? Um, it has to do with the idea that, that there were clearly politics and policies and actions that would take place that were evidently very race-based, mm. right? Um, and is that any different than the historical politics and policies and actions against Chinese American community? People may not realize it, but when we talk about Chinatown, you know why there's a Chinatown? Chinatown was apartheid. Mm-hmm. You had to get back to Chinatown if you were Chinese mm-hmm. by a certain time of day or evening. Uh, if you didn't have papers, then you were subject to some sort of prosecution or persecution, as mm-hmm. it were. Um, so race and identity politics, whether you're talking Jim Crow, whether you're talking about the suffragettes, that's identity politics. Okay. So the question is, I think where we are right now is um, we are in a country that is becoming majority minority, meaning that there are more brown people, more um, black folks, but particularly more the browning of America, meaning you know folks that are from Asia, folks that are from Latin countries, folks that are from African countries, folks that are from the Middle East. We're becoming the majority. So identity politics are very ingrained in the movement of, of policy and the movement of politics uh, in our society. And I think that as we become more of a minority or a majority minority 
um, nation, we're going to continue to have what I call sort of existential crises. Some people are going to have existential crises about what that means. Is this who we want to be? Do we want to be the nation that does not live up to its aspirations that we are all equal? Thank you so much for tuning in today. For more of us and everything that we do, the conversations that take place here in the Michelle Meow Show, visit michellemeow.com.